for a little bit of my Alaska dry voice. Hopefully we'll be able to sustain through. I'll, I'll drink water through the, uh, through the hour. But uh, we're looking at the theme of purity in the church. And I want to introduce the theme of purity in the church by highlighting an attribute of God first and foremost. And that is God as Father. J.I. Packer said there's no more Christian name for God than God as Father. And it's a very endearing idea, a very endearing truth that God is your Heavenly Father. I was uh, at a funeral about two weeks ago where um, a family had lost um, the father in the family, and it was a very heart-rending funeral. And one of the pastors quoted Psalm 80, 68, 5, which says that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. God as father, he loves you. And to know God's love for us personally and intimately is powerful. But I have to say that God's love, though it is endearing, sometimes God's love hurts because God, as Hebrews 12 puts it, chastens the ones that he loves, right? I remember reading that for the first time as a young believer and sort of scratching my head thinking, okay, we're talking about God's love for us. So how is it that God's love comes with him trying us or testing us or chastening us? And Hebrews 12, 5 makes a lot of sense when you put it in the context of a father trying to correct us and grow us. Hebrews 12, 5, let me just read. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So in other words, if you're in a love relationship with the father and he loves you, then he is going to actually use life circumstances and allow things to happen to us for our good, to discipline us. He's very proactive in his love. He seeks after us as a shepherd with a straying sheep and chides us and corrects us and grows us through discipline, makes us holy. I was applying this um, very convictingly so to my parenting, thinking, how much do I love my six kids? Well, when I'm proactive, when I'm seeking them out, when I'm chasing after them, when I'm confronting them about their sins, when I'm willing to discipline them and take the time to do that, I'm exercising love. When I'm passive, when I'm backing away from confrontation, when I'm letting things slide, when I'm letting patterns build in my children's hearts and lives, I'm not exercising love at all. Passive parenting is, in essence, unloving parenting. Well, it's the same way in the church, and there's several passages we're going to look through this morning, but your love for each other as a body, as a family, comes through to the degree that you are concerned for each other's spiritual lives and each other's personal holiness. I say, wait, time out. You know, I, I like to live my life, draw a circle around myself, around my family, and sort of be protective and self-protective in that way. But the Bible describes a bit of a different picture in terms of going after each other, showing your love for each other, caring for each other enough to actually 
confront each other about sins, to get into awkward situations and awkward conversations where you bring something up that you see in a person's life, not to harm them, but because you love them enough to actually talk about something that could be harming them spiritually. If, if you see a brother or sister that you love, younger or older, that is falling away from Christ and even harming themselves or harming their families or harming their spouse or harming their children, the Bible, God's word, calls us to intervene and to love people enough to have hard conversations. And so I wanna sort of open up this New Testament theme to us. We'll begin in Matthew 18, but let me just, just give you a splash effect of how often this comes up in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we're gonna look at that. 1 Corinthians 5, we'll glance at that later on. Galatians 6, 1. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. 1 Timothy 1, 20. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 21. And Titus 3, 9 through 11. All talk about what theologians call or Bible scholars call church discipline. Have you ever heard of church discipline? Church discipline or the ministry of reconciliation is actually designed for the church for the purpose of holiness, for the purpose of accountability, and for the purpose of unity in the body of Christ. It's actually, it's a means of grace. It's a protection that is designed within the family of God where we look out for each other, where we help one another pursue Christ and be more and more like Jesus. I know that you know, it can be disconcerting to talk about a topic like this. I'm not personalizing this with anything in our church right now, but I'm just trying to be faithful to where the scripture has led us at the end of Titus. I'm getting a running start to finish off our series on the pastoral epistles, but we're going to start with Matthew 18, and we're going to talk about church discipline. It's one of the three effects of church discipline is that it provides accountability for the local church. There are three chief effects on the local church, and the first is found in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, where church discipline holds the church accountable. Right, let me try to prove to you that we need this in our lives, okay? That's my goal this morning, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is step one in church discipline. And by the way, this is the teaching of Jesus and all of the New Testament passages we're gonna to touch upon come back to this foundational teaching in Matthew 18. This is step one. It keeps the circle of confrontation, of discussion about a sin that you see in someone's life. It keeps it very private. At this point, things are very informal. I mean, they, they should be serious, but informal. No one else knows about this. This is in the context of a relationship, a context of you might not even know the person very well. It just could be in the context of you just love the person because you love the same Lord. But it is in a personal setting that step one should take place. This is a step actually that should be and is taking place in local churches all the time. You should always be in community group or Bible studies or neighbors or family or whatever where you talk to each other about issues that could lead you or another person astray. You go to that person. Galatians 6 says that we're to do this in the spirit of gentleness where we see anyone who's caught 
in a transgression, you who are spiritual should seek to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. It's Galatians 6.1. And so this is step one in the body of Christ. It's when the sin is clear. It's not that we're nitpicking on everybody's thing that you perceive or thinks going wrong in a person's life. We're not to be judgmental over people. The Bible says it's a glory for a person to overlook a transgression. So we are not supposed to, you know, scrutinize people and strain them like turnips. But when there's something that's obvious that needs to be addressed, you could be that person who is coming as a means of grace to help a person out. That's step one. Step two, the process widens the accountability. First of all, it is private. Now it's widened in the accountability. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this is a step where you as a believer um, perhaps know people who've seen your brother or sister who's in the same, who's observed that sin and you're bringing those people into a more formal and a little bit more public conversation and confrontation where you're literally saying, look, we all have seen this in your life. We're concerned. I mean, it could be something like, you know, we're, we're seeing you build an unhealthy relationship with someone who's not your spouse. It could be we've, we've seen or noticed this issue in your life, the way you're treating your children, the way you're managing your money or mismanaging it. We've seen, you know, this incongruity in your life and we want to talk about it. And the two or three are there to be watching and, and to see evidences of either repentance or hardening that are taking place. You can, if you know, the other two or three don't know about this and you can gather them into the process, that's not ideal, but it is so that more accountability is provided over someone who's straying away from Christ. The two or three um, being brought in, it links back to the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy. Um, you probably have seen or heard that phrase before by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every fact be established. That's an Old Testament principle that Jesus is carrying forward in this process. Paul carries that same principle forward in the New Testament church. And there were some pretty severe laws back in the Old Testament, one of which is Deuteronomy 17.6, where the death penalty was at play for worshiping false gods. If you were worshiping idols... You die for that as a child of God, as an Israelite. And the death penalty was put into play when two or three witnesses would gather and say, we have observed this and we collectively are affirming that this sin is happening. And actually in Deuteronomy 17, 6, it says that the witnesses are the ones who were supposed to raise their hands and throw the stones first. Verse seven, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. So this is very severe, very grave imagery and reflections by bringing this up. And Jesus himself, when he was confronted by the Pharisees who would attempt to stone him at the end of John eight, also hearkened to by the mouth of two or three witnesses, accuse me in terms of witnesses, even God as a witness. So the process then moves to a wider it circle, really the widest circle. And that is where if a believer, a brother, this is a brother, this is not uh, an alleged non-Christian. This is someone who's in the body of Christ. If this brother is not listening, is not winnable, is not gained, then step three takes place. 
he refuses to listen, um, a, a brother could at that point listen, but if he or she is not, brother or sister, you tell it to the church. Now, that can sound very harsh. And in our culture, it's very risky to go public about someone's sin. But Jesus calls the church to take that risk and for the good of the person. You're trying to win someone back. You're not trying to embarrass someone. You're not trying to disparage someone. You're not trying to ruin someone. But if these measures are necessary and there's no time limit between step one and step two and step three. So if things over a long period of time where you're confronting a person and you're trying to work with a person and this person is rejecting and rejecting, then in essence, you're calling the whole church to participate in the discipline process. You're calling the whole church to not just know about the sin, but to pursue the straying sinner. I've seen it happen. I've seen people, I've known of people who, who, it's as if they were abandoning the faith. They were going their own way. They, hard heart, they were hard-hearted in the process. They didn't even care that they were spoken of in front of the whole church. But over time, by the pursuit of the church, they were restored back into the fellowship. And every time I approach a, t- a topic like this, people say, yeah, I remember this one time when this happened or that. There's a couple dynamics that go on when you tell the whole church. Two things. One, you're warned personally about a person who is hard-hearted, who is in rebellion. In other words, the Bible says in the New Testament, bad company corrupts good morals. Galatians 6.1 says at the end of um, the call for the church to restore believers, Galatians 6.1 gives a warning in that process, same process, where Paul says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, you can be drawn in to sort of buy into the sin practices or the rebellion as you're confronting a person, as you're going heart to heart with somebody. Hey, I'm appealing to you. Come back to the body of Christ and, you know, don't flee from, from Christ to your sin. And that person could begin to turn the tables on you and say, oh, you know what? It's been so great and it's really not that bad and the church is doing me wrong, so come to my side. Happens all the time. You gotta guard your heart as you pursue people who are in that state of rebellion. Secondly, it's where the church can outreach with passion and with a collective uh, effort to go after someone. All right, let me give you an example. I was uh, recently watching a video. It was actually posted on Facebook because it was a celebration of someone who had come back to the faith. Uh, my wife uh, was classmates with this person. He was, he was at the Christian college that she went to, and he um, went to seminary, and he became a pastor at a church in Southern California. And then suddenly, you know, word got out that he had to step away from being a pastor, and he had gone back. I, I know his younger brother, his brother was having me pray for him over about a decade time. He was going back into the gang scene and began to sell and use drugs and was in prison. So he was hitting rock bottom. But instead of hardening his heart, ultimately, um, what the video revealed is that he came back. He repented. And he was standing there in front of the congregation, sharing his heart, saying, thank you for following through with steps one, steps two, and steps three. And then even step four. Look at step four here, verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So step three, the whole church is pursuing the person. The person should listen to the church. But step four is where you release the person into the world 
They are disfellowship. They're, they're outside of the body of Christ. They're going to do harm to themselves in the church and to other people at that point. And so you treat them as if they're an unbeliever. You don't know where they are spiritually. We don't know where that person was that was the pastor who went back into the drug scene. I don't know if he hadn't become a Christian yet or not. The guy was sharp. He was musical. He was a great preacher, an awesome personality, just infectious spiritually and completely hardened up and left the church. And it was the best thing that that church could do was say, go be in the world. We will pray for you. We will pursue you with gospel love, but we're pursuing you as if you're an unbeliever. And guess what that person did? Hit rock bottom and came back and repented and was restored. It's a beautiful picture. That is the picture of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 gives four steps. And it's, if you notice verses 18 through 20, I just got to touch upon this. A lot of times people don't see these last verses in this section as part of the discipline process. But look at this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, many of you have heard these verses probably in the context of prayer meetings, where you're saying, Lord, we want your significant presence here because we're praying together in two or three. But these verses actually are connected to Jesus's teaching about church discipline. Two or three witnesses gathered together in an intervention praying that a person will repent, praying and seeking the person's repentance. And Jesus promises something very significant, and that is that he is there in the midst of that prayer meeting over a straying sinner. In other words, Jesus takes church discipline very seriously. The binding and loosing here is the binding and loosing that's happening in the heart. A person is either bound up in their sins or they're freed from their sins in the accountability process in the prayer meeting where you're trying to call people back to the flock. Let's move to the second scenario. These are three effects that church discipline has on the church. And again, I'm just trying to, to give a broad overview, but finish in Titus 3, but we're going to go halfway there, almost there. We're going to go to 1 Timothy 5 to point out another effect. The first effect of church discipline is accountability, where you pursue people who are straying on all levels. And the second effect of church discipline, this means of grace, is that of holiness. Holiness. First Timothy 5. This is talking specifically about church leaders. How do you confront someone who's straying in sin who is a church leader? Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. First of all, let me just say this. This is talking about the office of elder. This isn't just talking about an older person like uh, earlier in chapter five. This is talking in the immediate context about those who are the preachers, the teachers, verse 17, those who rule well, those who are, are employed or even the unemployed elders of the church. Um, Titus chapter one, verse five, um, reveals this office as well to us. It's the elder overseer pastor that we've been talking about, either a lay pastor or a um, paid pastor. 
This is a person who is needing to be confronted because they are, error, they are erring in their ways, either doctrinally or morally. And so how do you do it? Well, first of all, there's something very healthy here that's given. There is some inbuilt protect, protection for spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders, uh, in essence, Paul is saying to Timothy, need a layer of protection. In other words, spiritual leaders are out front. We're the ones who speak. I'm getting ready to say a whole bunch more in front of, you know, a couple hundred people. And that makes me vulnerable. It puts me under the spotlight for scrutiny or, or criticism. Uh, lay elders, teachers, people who are out front, people who are counseling people, people who are confronting people about their sins, people who are trying to get the doctrine right. We're a bit more vulnerable. We're just out front and that's the way God designed it. And I'm happy to serve the Lord in this way. This is not a pity party. Woe is me, I'm vulnerable moment. This is just calling what is, is. This is just what it is. But there is a layer of protection for the spiritual leader where people don't have license to just in a willy nilly sort of rebellious, radical way, in a haphazard way, just confront leaders spiritually. They're in a position of leadership, and so honor should be given to that. Secondly, there should be an assumption made that spiritual leaders are accountable to each other as fellow elders. Eldership is a spiritual office, and as was mentioned recently by one of our elders, we are constantly in accountability with each other. We're constantly seeing things in each other's lives and talking to each other about personal sins. And, and so there's an internal accountability. There's a, a vertical accountability to your Lord. As you know, the Lord is holding you to a stricter judgment like James 3.1 talks about. And so that dynamic is going on. That's the dynamic where you see Paul confronting Peter in Galatians 2.11, where he approached him and confronted him to the face. It's the accountability you see Paul to Timothy. It's the accountability you see Peter as a fellow elder to the elders in 1 Peter 5. It's the accountability that you see Paul give the elders at Miletus, where he gathered them together. And it says in Acts 20, 18, he lived among them, 27 and 31. For three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Very intimate admonition happens in the context of the spiritual office of elder. However, no elder, no pastor is impervious to sin. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You've seen leaders who are public preachers fall from ministry and fall hard and mess up. And, and sort of put the name of Christ in disrepute and, and besmirch the name of the Lord. And so there is a biblical path that both provides protection, but is a way for people in the body of Christ to confront or literally to, it's saying to accuse an elder or charge an elder, accuse can sound negative, but charge it against an elder something that is a sin issue. Look at verse 19. You're not to admit that charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, if you're confronting an elder, you're bringing witnesses with you. Now that doesn't mean the witnesses have to have seen the sin pattern, but I'll tell you what, that's kind of the intent. That's the idea. The idea is that you with a couple other people have been exposed to a sin that's unrepented of, that's, that's real, it's ongoing, it's harmful to that elder, perhaps it's harmful to the body, and you get the boldness to get those people together and you go and you talk to that elder about his 
sin. Emphasis on him because elders are men. And so you're coming to this man and you're bringing the sin up. Now, if the elder is confronted and repents of the sin, if it's verified that indeed this was a real sin issue that needed to be repented of, that elder, I infer from the text, doesn't necessarily have to step down from the office. If you look at this at verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, I infer from that that there could be a scenario where you're confronting the elder and you're talking about the issue and the elder goes, um, I give, yes. I see that from scripture. I see it in, on the basis of the accountability of these witnesses. I need to repent of my sin. And to the degree that, that the sin was public, there needs to be public repentance. To the degree that it's private, it's just private repentance. But that's how this process is to take place. And it's, it's in a formal context because there are people who, when they're confronted in the body of Christ about their sins, sometimes they want to push back on the spiritual leaders. So there needs to be a carefulness in the approach. But the approach can and should be taken when sin is there. Uh, the process, in essence, verse 20, is saying it requires follow-through. There's an inbuilt protection, but once the process is at play, and this is sort of Matthew 18, starting at step two, that's where you start with an elder, step two, where you're taking two or three witnesses, you gotta follow through with the process. It takes boldness and courage to do that, but that's what should be done as for those who persist in sin. Then it says, you rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What does it mean to rebuke in the presence of all? This is step three of Matthew 18. It's where you tell it to the whole church. Some people, some scholars will narrow this to you're just telling it to the rest of the elders. I think the elders probably are involved with the two or three witnesses if that elder is not repenting, right? And so it's even wider than that circle at this point. The whole church needs to know because if someone is hard-hearted and needs to perhaps step down from the office of elder temporarily or permanently, then the church is gonna wonder what happened. And so you tell it to everyone, not just for clarification's sake, but for this reason. You tell it to the whole church so that the church will be held accountable by what happened. It's a call to holiness. If a leader, and when a leader falls and is unrepentant, it actually can be an instrument in God's hands to call the church to holiness. Have you ever had that happen where somebody, you just go, man, this person mentored me, this person's great, I love this person, and then all of a sudden there's this whole other life that you had no idea that that person was living, and that person is sort of gone, gone from the church. And, and you say, man, if that person can fall into sin, if that person can leave his spouse, um, if that person can, you know, lack integrity, then who do I think I am? It's where you, you turn the searchlight on your own heart and you say, I'm a sinner. I could fall too. And so it's a call to holiness. You see that? May the rest may, verse 20, stand in fear. It was the dynamic that happened in the book of Acts chapter five. Ananias and Sapphira, you know the story well, but I just wanna point out a few highlights there. Ananias and Sapphira were just people as part of the body of Christ, but it was um, a sin that was public and there was an adjudication that was very powerful. 
Remember verse 1 of Acts chapter 5 picks up on the story. There's a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back from himself, um, for himself, some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now that, my friend, stop there. That's the sin. It's not that Ananias should have given all of his money or was required to give all of his money for selling the property. No, it's that Ananias was standing up in front of God, in front of Peter, in front of the church and saying, hey, I've sold my property and here's all, and he talked to his wife about it, you know, before, here's all the money that I got from selling the property. And so that was spiritual hypocrisy because he was trying to look better than he actually was and he was also lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to the church. And so Peter said, Ananias, verse three, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Notice, Peter isn't laying the blame at Satan. He's saying, look, Satan has filled your heart. The father of lies, you've, been, you've come under Satan's spell, but who's responsible for the lie? Ananias. You're the one who contrived the deed in your heart. You've not lied to man, but to God. God is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God, the third member of the Godhead. Verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now look at the response of that action. It wasn't just for adjudication's sake. It was God communicating how much he's concerned for holiness in the body. And this is early on. This is, we had the revival happen, the 120 in the upper room, the 3,000, more multi-thousands were saved. And then probably about 20,000 people were saved. It's massive revival that's taking place and the church is, is booming. And yet, People are dying in that place. What's happening in that church where you stand up and you give some of your money? Yeah, you fudge a little bit about how much you're giving or why, but you get struck dead for that. I ain't going to that place. I mean, this is not church growth type, you know, material. This is not how to grow your church, you know. People die in here, you know. I mean, churches oftentimes will kind of look the other way and say, hey, we'll take that money, you know. Who cares what the motive is? Who cares if there's deceit behind it? We need the money. Not, not in God's house. It says, great fear came upon all who heard of it. In other words, great personal examination. We're gonna examine ourselves before we take the communion. The Bible says to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's a healthy spiritual discipline. Verse six, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Peter was giving her a, a test and, he, and she said, yes, for so much. Again, there's the lie. That's the problem. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Here's the effect again. Same effect as 1 Timothy 5 when you turn over an issue in front of the whole church 
and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Notice the two groups that are fearing what's going on. First, the church is in fear where they are examining themselves and then all who heard these things. Everybody else in the community is hearing about this. Hey, when church discipline happens, people hear about it. People talk about it. You know what it means? It means that the church is serious about what they believe and the church is willing to do hard things and follow through biblically on what the church is required to do. We, we're a church. We help people regarding their sins. We'll talk about hard things and we will go after people, even if it means going public to pursue people, to bring them back. I, you know, church discipline, talking about it, it it's kind of like being in a youth group when the youth pastor talks about eternal hell. I mean, it's sort of this, you know, sobering thing. It's got all our attention. We're really thinking about it. We're thinking, you know, what's behind this message? Where's this going? How would this play out in Anchorage Grace? But really think about church discipline positively for a second. You know what it is? It's a protection. It's helpful. It's helpful as a, a child to know, hey, don't go run out in the street. You'll get run over, right? I mean, that's sobering to the child, but it's freeing to know as a child, you got a parent that's looking out for you and it can free you up. And so it's freeing to know that people will speak into your life. We all know we're sinners. We all have guilt. We all have sin in our hearts. We know that. But I think sometimes it's healthy to know, you know, if this stuff starts to crop up or these patterns get too strong or too severe, there are people here that love me enough to tell me that I need to rein something in, that I need to repent of something. And that's where church discipline is a means of grace. And, and God forbid we ever have to find ourselves in, in a step two or a step three or a step four scenario. But that could be the very process that brings us back in line. Well, 1 Timothy, one more note um, in verse 5. Uh, it, you know, it takes follow-through. There's inbuilt protection. It takes follow-through. But um, the process also demands impartiality. And I hadn't seen this until I studied it this week, so I'll just mention it. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the, of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without pre prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, you're not supposed to prejudge in a, in a context like this where an elder or a pastor or an overseer, um, it could be, you know, a deacon or something like that, but specifically elders, you're not supposed to prejudge whether or not you think that person's a sinner or that person's off the hook. You're supposed to approach a spiritual leader with impartiality. And the stakes are high. I mean, Paul is saying, look, I'm charging you not to prejudge and to be impartial before God. God is the ultimate judge. It's the same language that's used in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Timothy was charged to preach the word. It's in front of God that this charge was taking place. And so here you have it where Paul is telling Timothy, look, don't prejudge the situation. Don't let a spiritual leader off the hook just because they're a spiritual leader. Don't ignore people when they say these are issues. And on the other hand, don't assume that spiritual leader is toast. Even if that spiritual leader has sinned or has sin patterns, allow that sinner to repent. And then you make decisions as to whether the leader has to step down temporarily or permanently. You don't presume innocence and you don't presume guilt. Titus chapter three, 
Last hour, I was, I was shocked that I was able to get through two passages and get to actually our goal. But here we are again. We're going to be able to finish our series on the pastoral epistles. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Church discipline, it brings healthy accountability. Church discipline, another effect it has is it brings fear and holiness to the church. And then thirdly, church discipline safeguards the unity of the church the unity of the church. And this is a sort of a severe section. This is talking about a ramped up scenario where you have someone whose sin is on the attack to divide the church. It's a sin that Paul talked in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, that is likened to gangrene. It's a spreading disease that's coming from someone's sin in the church and it needs to be dealt with severely and swiftly. Church discipline. First of all, avoid factious behaviors. That's verse nine. Um, it's where you have people who are either, you know, subtle false teachers or, or aggressive known false teachers who are in the church who are creating these effects. Look at the first one. It's four different things that are to be avoided here. Avoid foolish controversies. That's the first one. It's repeated a couple times in First and Second Timothy. Foolish controversies. These are the debates that aren't supposed to be had in the church. These are the things that you really can't ultimately nail down in Scripture. So if you quibble about these things, it'll be to people's detriment. Do these sound like heavy-duty sins? I mean, they sound like on the surface, you know, it's not someone leaving his wife. It's not, you know, someone abusing his kids. No, it's, it's over-debate. It's, it's debating too much. It's, it's creating... Um, conflicts about spiritual things in the church. Foolish controversies. Second category, genealogies. What? So, so someone's a false teacher who's talking about genealogies? Are genealogies a bad thing? Well, in the Old Testament, genealogies are part of the Word of God that define and describe the line of Judah that is to King David and then Matthew chapter 1 to, to Christ our Messiah. So genealogies are a good thing. But what Paul is referencing here is looking for things in Scripture that really aren't there. It's the idea of twisting Scripture. And when people are twisting Scripture to mess people up, like in Titus 1, it's described where, you know, verse 11, they must be silenced. Look, because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 13, they're to be rebuked sharply. And then uh, verse 14, they were devoted to Jewish myths. And then verse 16, um, they deny him by their works. They're detestable and disobedient. There's always a character behind a scripture-twisting false teacher. But I just want to sort of throw this out there because we're all susceptible to doing stuff like this where you try to power play or, or make a power effect with the word of God by twisting scripture. And this is very dangerous. It's dangerous to a person in their own heart, and it's dangerous to a flock if it's left unchecked. It creates dissensions and quarrels. These are other categories. Categories that, as shepherds, you want to avoid. You don't, literally, you're shunning these categories. You don't want to be involved in that kind of stuff. And then when you're identifying someone who's leading people astray spiritually, and underneath that is always immorality, that's taking place and ill motives, then that person needs to be dealt with quickly. Look at verse 10. It says, as for a person who stirs up division, the Greek word there for a person that stirs up division is one word. It's heretikos. It's where we get the word heretic. And it's a heretical person 
who you're supposed to warn him once and then twice. That's it. It's a quick process. You avoid the factious behaviors and then you dismiss a factious person, verses 10 and 11. The process here is limited to two warnings. Remember Matthew 18 talks about the private circle, the first, you know, you're going personally one-on-one and then it widens to two or three witnesses. Well, this, this is, you know, this is like almost between step two and three. You're just going for it. As spiritual leaders, you see this and you go right to the issue and you say, listen, you've got to stop this. You're messing things up here. You're messing up the church. You're creating gossip in the church. You're creating division. You're literally, the, the language here is you're breaking the church apart. And so you, you go after that person and you give them one warning and you give them a second warning. And then it says, have nothing more to do with them. That just sounds harsh, doesn't it? On the surface, but when you think in terms of the unity of the church and the importance of that, you understand that these are clear commands that need to be obeyed. If you turn back with me to 2 Timothy 2, verse 23, Paul's saying the same thing to Timothy. And it's the same idea and same context. Pastorally, he's saying, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Hey, these are the things that build spiritual pride, have nothing to do with that. These are the things that people want to get wound around the axle about and distract the church from Jesus and the simplicity of knowing Christ Jesus by grace alone. These are the issues that, that mount up that build cynicism. Uh, a person who becomes a cynic or a critic of the gospel is hardening their heart and is endangering their souls. Well, controversies he, he says you know that they breed quarrels verse 24 and the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome lord's servants to be opposite of this but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil listen to this this is the motivation behind going after someone correcting his opponents with gentleness god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth Aren't you glad God granted you repentance? You know, I was, I was pretty warped. And think about this. What I mean, before I was saved, I knew a fair amount of Bible. It was one of the most dangerous positions I could have possibly been in. I was exposed to a lot of light. I was exposed to a lot of Christianity, raised in a Christian home, around fellow professing believers. I was around a lot of hypocritical young people. I was that skeptic. I was that judgmental person. And somehow through gracious, gentle confrontation, God granted me the gift of repentance. That's what this text is talking about. Verse 26, and they may come to their senses. It's the same phrase that was used of the prodigal son who was in um, the pig sloth, you know, sloth and mire. And, and uh, that, was, that was what happened when he repented. He came to his senses. It says, and escape from the snare of the devil and being captured by him to do his will. Listen, this is hard work. This is the heavy lifting of the body of Christ. But this is a necessary duty within the church to safeguard its unity. At the end of verse 10, have nothing more to do with them. Literally, it means that you're dismissing the person from the fellowship. You're excusing the person, saying, listen, you're causing division, you're causing strife, and we need to ask you to leave. And 
You don't ask the person to leave just to protect the flock, but you're actually asking the person to leave so that they are stunned by the fact that the church believes that they aren't a believer or might not be a believer. And that stark reality can wake a person up. I've seen people that, that are acting heretical, acting divisive. When it comes to that and they awaken, they go, you know, I need to return to the family of God, but on the terms of the Bible, not my terms. 1 Corinthians is another place. We'll just quickly look there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where this was happening, where a person was being immoral, even beyond what was pagan immorality, or it was, you know, a man who was, who was um, in an incestuous relationship. And verse 5 says that Paul said, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why do you send somebody out of the fellowship? Why do you send them into Satan's realm, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil's realm? Why, why do you send them out there? It's so that they recognize that they have lost something that they used to have. They used to have good fellowship, good relationships, good body life. They enjoyed themselves and then they're outside of the fellowship and they can awaken and come to their senses. I've heard tell of pastors who see somebody come back, kind of crawling back into the office saying, what has been going wrong? I've been sick. I lost my job. I've been attacked. Uh, you know, I've been out of fellowship and things have been rough. What is going on? And a pastor said, yeah, You've been in Satan's realm. You've been in his backyard. And God has used that realm to strip everything away from you to, so you'll hit rock bottom. The only place you can look is up. That's what Paul is talking about here, the so-called brother. Well, back to Titus. Lastly, you dismiss the person after two warnings. But there's an important rationale behind this dismissal. And that's found in verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped. Literally the word warped, it's a middle voice. It's a person that's turned inside out. They're turned inside. Have you ever known someone or ever been in that situation where you are literally turned inside out? No matter what truth is being given, it's being repelled. The person's hard-hearted and it's bouncing off their mind. They don't care what you're saying anymore. They're not, they're tuned into AM and they need to be tuned into FM and they're not gonna do it. They're just, they're stuck. They're stuck. They're not listening. Second Corinthians 4, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. It's a blindness. The person is sinful and self-condemned. And you know that because through these very severe and quick and strong warnings, you see a person is hardening and damaging the flock and themselves. And they need basically step four to take place where the person is disfellowshipped and publicly um, called out where the church pursues that person. But there's, there's a guardedness here, again, because you don't want to be drawn into their sinful straying. So what are the three effects of church discipline? Number one, it's body life accountability. Number two, it's a call to holiness. And number three, it's, it's a safeguard on unity. And I think this is an appropriate lead-in for us as we observe the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11 says we are to examine ourselves. We're, we're to pray and seek the Lord's grace in our own lives. We should examine ourselves.